Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. I feel after that singing, we can just pray and go home. That was great. That was great. Don't they do a Lucas and the team? They do such a great job. Such a great job. What a blessing. What a blessing. You know, change is hard. I was listening to that song, We Are Free. If he sets us free indeed, we are free. But change is hard. I think that's the opposite side of what it is that I'm going to be speaking on tonight, today, is, is this that change is difficult. Um, I mean, this last week, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm humbled to, to say this, but last week I worked out for the first time in a couple months, right? I was so sore. I couldn't walk for a week. It was terrible. I was grimacing going up and down steps. It was ridiculous. And I have to admit, I'm getting older, so change is hard. And on the team here, John, to make you feel better, I have the most gray hair. So... I have a lot of work to do, but it does my heart good, I must say, to have Spencer stand up here and not remember that last week was a snow day. So I felt good about that. I felt good about that. But change is hard. Sometimes change just hurts, doesn't it? It's difficult. Um, but I think we're in the series, follow, follow Me, Matthew. And I think this is what Matthew is telling us. Matthew is saying that, look, change is coming. It's impending. It's on us. It's not expected anymore. It's happening now. What you've longed, longed for is now here. That's what he's saying. And it, it just fascinates me how he does this. As I read through scripture, I've not found many times where God has said something or wanted to do something where there wasn't a change, an adjustment of the person he's speaking to. Because the truth is, if you want to walk with God, you have to change. There's going to be adjustments in your life. So if that's true of you, if you want to follow Jesus, then there's some changes we need to make. What are those changes? Well, I'm not going to tell you specifically what changes you need to make, but we need to rely upon God to show us those changes. Matthew does this in such a fascinating way in my mind. we got to start with the background. So what we need to do is start with how Matthew is setting it up. Because in the first four chapters of Matthew, what he does is he says, look, the Messiah is coming, change is happening, get ready. And then after those four chapters, the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll spend a long time on, Jesus is telling us what that looks like, what that is now. So in the first four chapters, if we go back in his theme, Matthew drops these cultural reminders, I call them, or markers. Um, they're kind of like, um, for instance, I visited someone's house a couple weeks ago, and I walked into their home, and there was just this lovely smell of cookies. Warm, you know, warm cookies right out of the oven, right? It reminded me how much I love pies. It just, it just, I just, I, my mouth, it was, it was just amazing. It was just amazing. That's a spiritual marker. 
That's a spiritual marker. That's a marker. It's not a spiritual marker. That's a marker. And it's a shameful plug for plies. That's what it was. But if I were to whistle, I can't even do it now. You know, I practiced this, and I thought I would try to do it. But I was going to, let's try this one. What is that? Jeopardy, right. How about this one? There's a story about a lovely lady. I heard the words. I heard the words. That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, exactly. The Brady Bunch. Thank you. Thank you. But those are markers. Those are markers of childhood. Those are markers that come to mind. As soon as you hear those tunes, boom, I'm no musician. That's why I praise them so much, because they're so good. But those are markers. Those are markers to remind us. And that's what Matthew does in the first few chapters. So let's look at those couple of things, the way they, the way they happen. Um, and here's one pertinent. I want you to have the tension of what it is that the readers are thinking. So in, John's got, in John, Revelation, uh, John writes that there's a day coming where all economic activity will only happen if you have a mark on your wrist or a mark on your forehead. You remember reading that somewhere? So no financial transaction will happen that way. But, you know, I went to the store yesterday. I use my phone for Apple Pay. I use Apple Pay all the time. It's on my wrist, on my forehead. You know, it's there. Could that be what John's talking about? Or I read the other day that Amazon, Amazon, they're going to use your palm of your hand. They're trying to work on a system to uh, work on the palm of your hand so that you can actually financially transact when you go into their stores. Yeah, is that what John's talking about? We don't really know. But as you sense the tension and you sense the fascination of what that could be, that's exactly what Matthew does in the Gospel of Matthew. In the first chapter, if we look there, um, these cultural reminders that he has for us, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that's a wonderful Christmas, Christmas verse that we reread and we think, oh, isn't that nice? That's all nice. But what I did, and I just did a precursory look at these passages real quick, because I want us to survey them so we understand the backdrop and the tension and the thoughts of what Matthew's readers were feeling. And so in that, in that all we're going to look at is the context. In this particular context, the Matthew, we're looking at the fact that this is the birth of Christ. This is the birth of Christ. But at the source of it, it's Isaiah 4, 7, 14. But when you look at the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is introducing to us a servant, the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. So when a Jew reads this, that's exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking, huh, is Matthew saying this guy's the Messiah? How can that be? It's not the Messiah. He walked among us. And all this tension they had in the passage. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In the context, this is the wise men coming to see Jesus. That's what Matthew's writing about. He takes it from Micah, a prophet in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5. Now, I don't know if you realize, just looking at an outline of Micah chapter 5, Micah is dealing with three cycles of judgment. And the particular cycle of judgment that 
Matthew pulls from in, in, in chapter 1 uh, or in chapter and refers to in Micah chapter 5 is the, the cycle in which there's judgment against unjust rulers, false prophets, religious rulers. So Matthew is reminding the Jewish reader that the promised ruler is here. Oppression from the unjust is over. Hallelujah. We're done, right? But as you look back at history, was the oppression done for them? No, no. I mean, Nero, Nero, as we read in history books, uh, would make human beings candles, just sick and twisted. I mean, Hebrews 11 tells us that there were believers who were torn apart. That doesn't sound like oppression's gone. And we come out of the 20th century. And the 20th century was probably the most violent century in all of history, they say. And we lived through it. What oppression is Matthew talking about? That's what would go through the Jew, Jewish reader. Because they're dealing with the cruelty of Rome. Look at Matthew 2.15. This was to fulfill that the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. So the context is their safety from Herod and his craziness that John spoke of last week. And the source of this is the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, chapter 11. Now, Hosea was, was the prophet that mirrored or God used to illustrate his relationship to Israel. His relationship that, um, of Israel's unfaithfulness and yet God's faithfulness. Because God asked Hosea to marry an unfaithful wife. And it's the story of how Hosea goes after her and goes after her and goes after her and goes after her and pursues her and pursues her, even though she doesn't want to be pursued. Which is us? Which is Israel? And so when the Jewish reader reads this, what they hear Matthew saying is that God is after us. God is after us. And then if, again, if you take a step back, it's the Messiah's coming. Here he comes. Here he comes. In Matthew 2.18, he says, Matthew writes, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they, weren't, they are no more. Now the context is Herod's murder of children. But it comes from Jeremiah. Did you know that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet? Did you know that the quote that Matthew pulls from Jeremiah is chapter, 20, is chapter 31 of Jeremiah? And if you were to open up the Bible in the seat rack next to you and just open it up to Jeremiah 31, you know what you'd see as a, as a title? God turns our mourning to joy. <laughs> And we know the scriptures. Most of us here know the scriptures pretty well. But to the Jew, it was their life. It, it, it was weaved into their society. They knew these passages backwards and forwards. It was everything to them. It was who they are. It was who they identified with. So that's just amazing that Matthew would send that message in the backdrop. That, hey, a Messiah is coming. Change is going to happen. And God's going to do it. God is doing it in our midst. 
Look at the last one we'll look at. is Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So this is, Jesus, this is Joseph, Mary, and Jesus returning from Egypt. And it quotes Isaiah 11. And again, the title of that chapter in Isaiah 11 is the righteous reign of the branch. He's here. He's back. He's going to reign. And the original reader would have been reminded it would be like the smell of cookies. It would be like singing Jeopardy, right? Or the Brady Bunch. He is saying that the righteous promised one is here and reminding them through a marker. This would have caused tension in the reader, right? I mean, is this really what he's saying? He can't be. He can't be. I I saw this guy. He can't be the Messiah. In the same way today, we think, what will we do with our cell phones if that's the case? What will we do with Amazon? We'll have to actually go to a store and shop, right? I mean, how does that change our lives? But change is coming. Change is here. By use of these markers, Matthew is saying, the one we have hoped for and longed for is already present, not simply still on the way. And the tension in their mind would have been palatable. But, but again, Matthew's been dealing with that. In the first chapter, he talks about the family tree. And in the family tree, the list is not a list of the kings. That's not the list that you would pick for a king. I mean, if I chose my family tree, I'd have a little LeBron James because I'd like to play basketball, right? I'd like to have a little Zac Efron so I can dance with my wife because right now I got no moves. And then I'd, I'd sprinkle in a little Bill Gates, a little Einstein, a little Steve Jobs, you know, just, you know, and then make, that would be, that would be a family tree. But this is not the family tree of a king. Uh, but, you know, the truth is, being part of God's family tree is not for one who can prove him or herself. It's for the broken. It's for the beat up. It's for the mistreated. It's for, it's for those who lied. It's for those who cheated. It's for those who steal. God's family tree is for the criminal who knew he was wrong, who was nailed to a cross next to Jesus as Jesus was hung at a cross, who said, remember me when I come into your kingdom. That's who God's family tree is all about. Not those who cover up their wrongs in order to be respected by others. Not for those who refuse to name their shame. Can you feel that tension from chapter 1 that Matthew draws? But there's also political tension. If you look at chapter 2, the wise men come, right? Another nation is coming to address the Messiah, the coming king of Israel itself. But that, that recognition comes from outside. That's political tension. They're navigating Herod's craziness. Life is crazy, isn't it? How do we navigate life? Leaving leaving and returning to Israel to go to Egypt, coming to and fro, that's all political uh, political, uh, navigation. The settling in, in Nazareth. So there's political tension that Matthew doesn't shy away from. But in our passage today, 
Matthew chapter 3. There's religious tension that Matthew's going to deal with. Look with me at Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 7 for now. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw the the many Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. This is Matthew's ta-da. This is Matthew's ta-da. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is is quite an interesting character. And this is the character that Matthew uses to say, hey, something new is coming. It's here. Something new is coming. But when you look at John, he's rough. He's rough. His diet is suspect, right? Who eats bugs and honey? Did you ever see the size of a, of a locust? Those things are massive. Um, his wardrobe is scandalous. Camel's hair and a belt. But those, again, are Matthew's markers, right? The locust, the wild honey, those are triggers in the mind of the Jewish reader. They're not necessarily triggers to us. That's kind of gross to us. It's gross to me. I'd rather have cookies and pie. But the camel hair, what does the camel hair do? The camel hair is a reflection back to Elijah, the great prophet who prayed, and it didn't rain for three years. Um, I don't know, have you ever been to a Jewish cedar? Or seder, I might be saying. Um, That's their practice of the Passover. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. We had a friend that was was Jewish and grew up and, and practiced the seders, and uh, she actually would have them so that um, she would sit with Christians and say, this is what they do here, and this is what they believe, and, and this is reflected through Jesus. This is what they do here, and this is what they do. So, and this is reflected. It was beautiful, just beautiful. But one of the things they do is there's an empty chair. There's an empty chair at the Seder. That empty chair is for Elijah. They're anticipating Elijah's return. Because once Elijah returns... Then the Messiah is here. And that's everything to a Jewish person. So when Matthew says here, hey, this guy's eating locusts and wild honey. This guy has camel hair. What he's saying is, this is Elijah. Wake up. He drops these markers. John the Baptist was someone who was not afraid to say the tough things. The things that were needed to be said that no one else would say. You kind of expect that from a person who eats locusts, though, right? Yet we need people like this in our lives. And I would challenge you. Do you have someone like that in your life who's willing to say the things that you don't really want to hear? Now, for us who are believers, who know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, who have come to that place where we have said, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus' sacrifice because he lived a life that I could never live. And he died the death that I was to die. I need him. For those of us who have said that, we have the Holy Spirit who resides in us. 
who tells us the things we need to hear. But you know, I find in my life, I don't know about you, when it's things that I don't necessarily want to hear, I kind of turn the volume down sometimes. And it's easy to do. And I appreciate Brian and his testimony about digging into the word because it's so easy to get lost in this stuff. Life just overwhelms you. Oppression doesn't stop. Trials don't stop. Day after day after day after day they come. How do you face those? And turning down that little voice inside your heart and mind is not the way to do that. We need people like that. We all have a need to change. You may think you don't, but just ask the person on your left or right. Or especially your spouse. What have you changed lately in your life? What is the Holy Spirit tapping on your shoulder about or whispering in your ear about? What have you just kind of ignored? For me, it was working out. What is it for you? What's that spiritual thing that is just between you and God? Do you need to confess something? Do you just need to name the shame? Maybe you need to reconcile that relationship that has been not so good lately. Maybe you need to abandon the desire for respect and just confess. What is it that has challenged you lately? God is always at work, and I know. I believe with my whole heart, if you ask him, he's going to show you. So I challenge you to ask. Ask with an open heart. Because a willingness to change says that you want to be close to God. And I would imagine we're here today not just because we want to be here. We're here today because we want to grow closer to God. As you read through Scripture, Noah, when he was, when he was asked to build an ark, something in his life had to give He had to make time to build that ark. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, had to to step away from his tax collector booth. Jonah had to leave his home. He had to overcome his prejudice. But remember, Jonah didn't want to. So what did God do? God swallowed him with a fish. And we think, oh, that's such a cute little story. A fish came along and swallowed him up. Did you ever think about what he went through? We just turned a page. But my goodness, I would go out of my mind in a stomach of a fish with water all over. You definitely have pruny hands, right? You got dead stuff floating around you. What was the smell like? And think about it. You're in pitch darkness, and you don't know what's touching you or what's slithering around you. My goodness. And yet, yet uh, once he realized he needed to change, what a beautiful prayer in Jonah. I, I would, if you have time this afternoon, go read that prayer in the middle of the book. And the fish spits him up, right? We need people who are willing to tell us the tough things. We need to be willing to confess those things. Do you have a person like John in your life? I know John would tell you what you need to know. 
So let's look at what he next says. Verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, John says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. What a family tree, right? They're relying on their family tree. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Don't trust your religious background is what he's saying. I think he's also saying, set your heart on God. Determine that you're going to set your heart on God. Don't trust in the past things that you've done, what you've learned in the past. Don't be worried about where you worship. It's not part of the kingdom that John is announcing. I mean, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we all know that. And that's our focus, gaining closeness to God. John is all about change. He's telling us that something new has come. Don't trust your background. Don't have faith in your background. Set your heart toward God. But he's also saying in in, in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What did Israel know about the Holy Spirit? When John says this, this is the beginning of his ministry, of Jesus. Jesus hasn't even launched his ministry yet. And here John is talking about the Holy Spirit. I didn't spend much time in this, um, but I just thought it fascinating that he brought it up. I think it would be a great study. Um, but, But I think that since John thought enough to say it, It meant something to the people he said it to. What was that? I mean, uh, I mentioned Jesus doesn't tell the disciples until the night before he died. This something new, this rethinking what we know, it's not easy. It's challenging. But I think John is also saying that we need to humble ourselves if we want to understand. In my devotions this past week, I came across Daniel chapter 10. Daniel had a vision, and it just troubled him so. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed for an answer. And there was no answer that came. But eventually the answer did come. And in that answer, in Daniel chapter 10, the person that's sharing what that vision was says this, Fear not, Daniel. From the first day you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. Oh, that's beautiful. Just not trusting in our background, humbling ourselves before God, and allowing ourselves to set or setting our heart towards others, determining that to be the case in our lives. That's where change begins. That's where you see step happening after step happening. And that's where you see a closeness to God grow. John is saying, something better is coming. Humble yourself and repent. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Being a city boy, I had no idea what a winnowing fork is. I mean, you don't, eat it, you don't use it to eat pie, right? So I found out that... Uh, 
I know it's shameless that I keep bringing up pie. I know, but I'm going to keep doing it. I, just, um, I, I learned that a winnowing fork is what is used on a threshing floor to gather grain. How does that fit into what Matthew's saying? He's saying, Matthew, Matthew's saying, hey, change is coming. Get ready to be gathered. God wants us. God wants to bring us in, but there's things in our lives that have to change. Repent. I baptize you for repentance, but there's one that's coming. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Much is going to change. Even prior to declaring that something new is coming, though, and and, and describing who John is, in verse 3 of Matthew, Matthew leaves another marker. He quotes Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 speaks of God's grace and goodness. And Isaiah 40 says, God plans to deliver his people. God is able to deliver his people. God is willing to deliver his people. Look at what it says in verse 3. For this is he, speaking of John, of who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, John's the guy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is talking to, remember, people who don't have the right family tree. He's talking to people who have been consistently misled, politically and religiously. These leaders often did so for their own gain. Sounds like today, doesn't it? But by quoting Isaiah 40, the Jewish reader is instantly reminded that God has promised to deliver me. God is able to deliver me. He'll do what he's famous for. All those stories. The parting of the Red Sea. The plagues. All those amazing things. This is the God that we serve. That's what they would have been reminded of. And so I think even in our lives, as Matthew lays marker after marker after marker after marker, what are the markers in your life? What are the markers that you can go back to and say, huh, yeah, I'll I'll take that step for God. What are those markers? I challenge you. If you don't have them, if none come to mind, it's not too late. God will start today. He'll start right at this moment. You just got to give yourself to it. You got to set your heart to him and you got to humble yourself before God. Very hard because change is hard. Change is difficult. John call, John's call to us to realize that a king has come. John's call is one to change. He says, repent. And remember, we can't go with God if we don't adjust our lives. My challenge to each of us is to seek God in prayer, to discover what he wants to change in us. What he wants to do is gather us. He wants to gather us to himself. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came. But we can't go as we are. Matthew, Jesus would say later in Matthew 23, he would say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, that, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered 
your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So the question I have for us, how willing are we? How willing are we? Can we pray together? Oh, Father, thank you so much for the great, great love you have for us. Thank you for your mercy and your goodness and your grace, your kindness and your direction. Forgive us, oh God. Forgive us for turning down the volume. Forgive us for turning the other way. Forgive us for for deciding not to when all you want to do is love us and show us what is best for us. Oh, Lord, I pray for our hearts today. I pray for our minds that we would just choose to set our hearts towards you and that we would humble ourselves before you, knowing that you are our God, that you want to deliver us, that you're able to deliver us, and that you're willing to deliver us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.